One of the best games ever that requires um, little to know anything else except just the game itself uh, is, my friends, this game. That's right, Hide and Go Seek. Now, um, I know many of you are big fans of Hide and Go Seek. Uh, I certainly am as well. But what I've realized is that as you grow, Hide and Go Seek changes. It progresses, okay? Uh, so, so when you're born... Uh, and you, you know, are a young child, uh, everyone wants to play hide with you, right? Like, you know, you, you got everyone kind of hiding around corner. Like, that's, the, that's like one of the first communications, okay? Anyone here who has kids, you know, like, that's one of the first things, like, boop, peekaboo, you know? Like, if we can, can kind of catch our child off guard, like, it's a win, right? Well, the game progresses a little bit when our child can then put their own hands up above their face, right? And they're not standing behind anything. They, they just like put their hands above their eyes and, you know, and, and they, you know, they open up and we act surprised and act like we couldn't find them and it's a beautiful thing, right? And, and, and then all of a sudden, uh, hide and go seek progresses a little bit more to, to start hiding behind uh, pieces that you're not really hidden, but it still feels like a game. So in other words, uh, maybe if you guys have curtains, at your house, right? And, you know, you, you watch three or four-year-olds hide behind the tall curtain where you can still see their legs. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, they feel hidden, but, like, obviously we know that, that you're there, right? Or, or some small objects in the living room where everyone is easily seen. Well, then it, it starts to progress. They get a little bit older. That loses its luster. And then, you know, full house, full backyard, hide-and-go-seek is in play, right? I mean, so you're hiding everywhere. Now we're okay scaring our children, okay? This happens around age 9 or 10. Like, you're not just saying peekaboo anymore. You're hoping, right, that, that you freak them out so much when you come around the corner, okay? And then what I've realized is adults love hide-and-go-seek so much that then we created paintball uh, guns, right? <laughs> and so, so now it's not like hands, and this is a sweet little innocent game. Like, now we're playing hide-and-go-seek and shooting one another, right? Like, you go hide behind that tree, and I hope you catch one off your face, right? Like, so there's, there's like this natural progression that takes place. And um, I, think, I think we're so naturally drawn to it, so naturally drawn to the game, that it is incredibly difficult to differentiate the difference between the game of hide-and-go-seek and the life of it. And um, this, this passage tonight, oh my goodness, it... It opens up for us all a world of hide-and-go-seek, not merely an activity. And so I want to bring all of you guys in to this journey tonight by recapping where we were last week. We're studying the book of Joshua. We're in chapter 10. And a whole lot of things happen in the first 15 verses of Joshua 10. So let's recap. The first thing that happened is Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, Okay, for those of you guys that were here last week, you remember this. He convinces four other Amorite kings of the south to join him in a battle against the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites have just made an alliance, okay, to the nation of Israel and Joshua by deceiving them. And so Adoni Sedek, starting to maybe fear for his own life or thinking that the Gibeonites need to pay, for their treason, 
he rallies some of these other kings. Next slide, we see this uh, happen next. Then the Gibeonites, strangely, asked Joshua to help. And, and I share with you guys, this is crazy, right? Like, the Gibeonites have deceived Joshua. They're now in covenant relationship together because of deception, right? And yet the Gibeonites still ask Joshua to come and save them, essentially. Number three, we see this in our summary from last week. The Lord then fights for the Israelites and ultimately the Gibeonites. And the scripture records that more die from this battle from hail than from the sword. So God rains down hail from the sky. More die from that than the sword itself. The Lord fights for the Gibeonites and the Israelites. And finally, we saw this from last week. Joshua then prays, as all of us do every day, for the sun to stand still so victory could be complete. And I'm wondering how many of you guys put that to the test in the last seven days, right? Like, Lord, I know you did it for Joshua. Um, maybe just for a half an hour, like just to throw off the whole thing. Like, Lord, would you, would you please cause the sun to stand still? My guess is you didn't attempt it, but my hope is that all of you left last week in the victory of Christ and that you showed up here ready to go for it. So open your Bibles, my friends, to Joshua chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 16 and right off the bat, this text takes a very interesting turn. These five uh, kings from the south versus the nation of Israel and the Gibeonites. Let's start here in verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. Just, just so none of us missed it, let me read it again. These five, and the scripture will be on the screen here, these five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. Kings. These aren't warriors. These aren't like the helpers. These are the leaders of these armies. And, and we're going to find out here in a second, the battle is not over. So their armies are still battling. People that they're leading are still dying. And somehow these five kings, in their cowardice, run and hide in a cave. Now I want the, the immense cowardly act of this to just sit on your, on your chest for a second. Like, like there's something innately in all of us, I think, that wants to like balk at cowardly acts. And I can't think of one greater. Like, I love We Were Soldiers. It's an old uh, Mel Gibson movie about the Vietnam War. And one of the whole premises of General Hal Moore is that he was the, the first on the field of battle and the last to leave. So you hear that mentality a lot in war, like no man left behind. Well, well this is like the precise opposite of that, right? Everyone's out there fighting, and we're going to go hold hands and sing Kubaya in a cave, right? Like, this, this is crazy. You guys know if you've ever been in a cave before, it's not the most well-lit place, okay? It's dark, it's cold, it's, um, it feels abandoned. Uh, one of my craziest cave stories, uh, which I almost hesitate to share, but I'm going to share it anyway. Uh, I was in Israel on a tour. I'd already broken the rules several times before this. 
Um, but we were at the, the, the caves of the Dead Sea. And so you guys uh, know, who know the Dead Sea Scrolls, they, you know, they, they say that they came from one of the caves. And so the guide's like, okay, we're not going to go up there in the caves, but you know, everyone's going to be hanging out down here. Go ahead and walk in the Dead Sea. You'll watch everyone float. It'll be great. He turns his back, and I head up to the caves, right? And so, um, and, and I'm not a hiker. And I didn't realize, like, when you hike, you, like, you're climbing rocks. Did you guys know this, right? Like, I wasn't prepared. I had, like, tennis shoes on, right? I, I, but So I, I, like, start climbing these rocks, and I'm feeling kind of like a mixture between Indiana Jones and Batman or something. And I look back, and, like, there's my whole crew down in the, in the Dead Sea, and, and the guide, he hasn't seen me, so I'm good. But I'm all by myself. And so finally, I get to what I think to be the cave that he pointed to when he said, there's where the Dead Sea Scrolls came from. I'm not sure what I thought I would find. Like, they already took the scrolls out. I I didn't know if, like, I thought I was going to excavate more or something, right? Uh, But I get up to the cave, and uh, I walk in the cave, you know, and and it's kind of that awesome moment where you're like, I made it. Like, I accomplished the goal. And so... um, like you do when you're in a cave, like you want to see how strong the echo is, right? And so, you know, I'm doing like, you know, I'm just doing like random bird sounds, right? And all of a sudden, I hear something flying towards me, right? And, um, and so I'm like, oh, that, that's, I'm tr- that's a robin, I bet, right? Like, this is nice. You know, this would be cool. Maybe a pelican will like land on my shoulder or something, right? And I, I, I mean this, like, I, I don't know how many hundreds of bats came out of that cave over the next 30 seconds. But just like you would picture in the movies, I'm standing there and bats are just like flying at me. I'm like running out like every man for himself. You know, I'm like tumbling down the mountain. Crazy story. That's my only time I've ever been in a cave. So I can, I can attest. I can attest to you it's dark, it's cold, it's isolated. It's dark, it's cold, and it's isolated, and yet they go there. Which shows us all how powerful cowardice is. It's powerful enough for these kings to leave their armies on the field of battle while their people are dying and still go with the other leaders, seemingly unashamed, into a cave. And so just to get us into this discussion tonight, uh, we're going to have to wrestle with some hard truths, certainly. So let's, next slide, start here. When is a time that you have hid in fear? Uh, Now certainly this happens in various forms, comes in various ways. But I'm just asking, and I think every one of us will be more engaged in the story if we can put ourselves there. When has been a time in your life that you've hid in fear? Now, I think that this is um, the pretty obvious question to ask. But I think the less obvious question and the more important question to ask is this. Next slide. Why did you hide? So we can all think of times where we ran like a coward and hid. We didn't want to face the reality. We wanted to get away from the situation. We were afraid of being found out. But my question is, as you start to search the motive of your heart, as I start start to search the motives of my heart, why do you think you went there? 
It's a crazy place to be. But these kings, betraying their armies, find themselves in a dark, cold, isolated cave. Verse 17 says, It was told to Joshua, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machida. This is interesting to me because somehow they're, they're, they're found, but I'm not exactly sure how that happens. Right, like the wars going on, the battles going on. I, like, did they start a fire in there? Was this, you know smoke signals coming out of the cave? Did, you know, did a couple troops uh, happen to see them walk up? Did some of their army, uh, you know, go to some of the the Israelite army and say, "Hey, uh, our king's up there in the cave. Why don't you guys go take care of business?" We don't know what happens, but uh, news gets to Joshua that they get found out. Now, this cave. Next slide. Uh, is here probably, okay, there's no, there's no way to be 100% sure of the location here. We know where ancient Makeda is, and so it's probably in that red box-ish, okay? The, uh, the armies that have uh, allied, uh, allied together, rather, are in those brown uh, white circles. So somewhere in uh, Makeda, these kings are in a cave, and Joshua finds out, and verse 18 is awesome. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. Let's talk about the tale of two forms of leadership right now, okay? So you have five kings that are gathered in a cave and now they're getting ready to have a stone rolled in front of the cave. And then you have another king who's been guaranteed victory in Joshua, a king as it were, okay, a leader, who's been guaranteed victory from God. And yet he still says, hey boys, listen, I know that us shutting the stone over this cave would give us this sense of ultimate victory because all of their leaders are in there. But listen, the battle's not done. The Lord has given us all of this into our hands, but we must keep fighting. So he says, don't stay there for yourselves. Let's keep going. The battle uh, battle is not over. Verse 20. When Joshua, I love this, and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out. And when the remnants that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities. People are scattering. People are dying. Then, verse 21, all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. And listen, there has been a lot of tongue movement up to this point. That was the whole thing that drove the alliance. These five kings came together because their tongues started to talk about what possibly they could do. But now the word says, because of the power of God, there's no one talking. I shared last week, and it's resonated with me for the rest of the week, that it's so easy to view this as a video game. It's so easy to like not understand the reality of the story and just think that these are images passing by, not very real but I just want you to understand now how the power of God has been shown to the nation of Israel. They marched around Jericho and seven days later, the walls came tumbling down. They faced defeat at Ai and then went right back, went right back 
and conquered Ai. And now, because of the victory of the Lord, they've just beaten five armies who allied together to take them out. God's power, my friends, is shutting the mouths of those who are witnessing. I love the reality that so much awe can happen even in pagans. Even in those who don't know God, that all of a sudden they wouldn't have anything to say. There's no rebuttal to the power of God is what I'm trying to communicate. Verse 22, this is crazy, look at this. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. Now, if you've ever been grounded, you know what this feels like, right? Okay? Uh, so your parents maybe use the tactic of grounding. How many of you guys have experienced grounding in some form or fashion? That's what your parents, that was their go-to, okay? And, uh, and so for some of you, like, it was like, hey, you're not leaving your room for like a day. You know, just stay in there. And then, right, and then all of a sudden you hear the creak of the door open. After like, you're like, you haven't been fed for 24 hours, you know? I mean, it's been locked down, okay? It's been prison break style, right? Like, this, this is going down. And then all of a sudden you hear the little creak of the door. And you're wondering, like, what's going to happen now? Like, is there going to be more grounding? Is, you know, are we going to have a civil conversation? Can I at least eat? You know, there's all kinds of questions that are arising. What do you think is going on in the minds of the kings? Better yet, what do you think they talked about while they were in there? My guess is they weren't playing checkers. You know what I'm saying? Hey, did one of you guys bring a game? All right, this is awesome. You know, and they're like playing categories over in the corner. It's not happening. Like, can you imagine the conversation or the lack thereof in that cave? They have to know their lives are going to end. And so then all of a sudden, the stone starts to show a little bit of light in what was very dark, cold, and isolated. And the overwhelming thought in their mind had to be, unbelievable bring them out of the cave verse 23 and they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave the king of Jerusalem the king of Hebron the king of Jarmuth the king of Lachish and the king of Eglon and when they verse 24 had brought those kings out to Joshua please see this Joshua summoned all the men of Israel in a very strange command and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Now, I read this like 40 times before I could even like begin to, right? I'm like, what? Like, like this, this is a very, very odd request. All right, so leaders, come on over. We're going to go ahead and put these guys on the ground. And now, please, because your feet are really stinky, I guess, put your feet on the necks of our enemies, right? Like, like what is the intent? Uh, if you have siblings, in particular, if you have a sibling of the same gender, um, you know, again, what this feels like, right? Like, when you have just wrestled your sibling to the ground, and they're sitting there in utter defeat, the ultimate sign of victory is when you put your foot right on their face, you know? And you like, like holding your arms up in the air, like what now, right? Like you have nothing, do you? And so my first thought was, okay, well, it must just be the beginnings of that, right? Like this is kind of like ancient sibling, you know, victory dance sort of stuff. Come to find out, in the ancient Near East, putting your feet 
on the necks of your enemies was a common practice when a kingdom had been defeated. Next slide. This picture is from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before all of this with the king of Assyria putting his foot on, yes, the neck of his enemy. And so in more of a cartoon fashion, but just to help us visualize it, this is a rendition of the common day practice, okay? Like humiliation, ultimate victory. And so Joshua commands, bring these kings out and let's show them what victory looks like and what victory feels like. Come, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. It's crazy in the scripture, right? Like how there are these weird moments, but then start to help us understand some more beautiful ones. And verse 25, which has my heart, Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Let's read these next four words together. Come on. Be strong and courageous. Now, if you've been journeying with us since the beginning of Joshua, this has a little bit of a ring to it. In Joshua chapter 1, the Lord said to our new 90-year-old-ish friend and brother Joshua, over and over, be strong and courageous. And the way I read this passage, if we can look at it just one more time, at the beginning of verse 25, and Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous. It's one thing to hear God's word. It's a whole nother thing to believe God's word. And it is a whole nother thing to speak God's word. But apparently what's happened in Joshua is he hears long ago when they were not yet crossed the Jordan River. He hears, be strong and courageous. Something now has happened inside of him where now he is an exhorter of God's word to his fellow brothers. To this nation, his sisters. Listen, you be strong and courageous. I long for so much more of that in us. Long for it, long for it. I've realized something. I think sometimes we can ridicule people for using flowery language. We'll even at times call it Christianese. Right, like using a bunch of big theological doctrinal words. And I know sometimes we can misuse that because we don't really mean it. We're just trying to sound like a Christian. But can I help you understand something and please celebrate this with me? I just got done reading several chapters in Romans. And there is, by our definition, some pretty flowery language. Righteousness and holiness and he's our savior and he's our redeemer. Some of the same words that we would ridicule people for saying them because they sound like they're disingenuine and, you know, they're just trying to speak. But listen, if it's coming from a genuine heart, it is speaking God's word. My point is, why would we dilute God's word at all? When Paul uses those words, we celebrate them. They, they stir us because God's word is living and active. Then, then why would we chastise one another? Thinking that, oh, we must have read that in some book somewhere. Yeah, we did. This book. 
We did read it somewhere. He is a redeemer, and he is holy, and he is righteous. And you know what? If my heart is genuine in it, then I'm going to exhort and proclaim from God's word the truth of who God is. And we all have that opportunity. Again, we could just skip over this verse, but my friends, this is a monumental moment in the life of Joshua. And I guarantee you for him, it was way more than just speaking it. I've encountered it. I've lived it. I've seen it. So listen, be strong and courageous. And then something very interesting happens. The end of verse 25 first, he says, For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Verse 26. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death. So, um, we've kind of been rooting for Joshua, right? You see him as a commander. He's certainly been hands-on. But this, this feels a little different, doesn't it? Joshua just told his army to be strong and courageous. And then Joshua, instead of one of his soldiers, strikes these kings down. I've reminded us several times, as I'll do one more time. This is not a God who is not merciful. This is not a picture of the Lord that lacks grace. This is the rightful picture of God who abhors sin. Who will judge sin. Who hates sin. And so yes, in this case, the nation of of Israel is commanded by God to inflict, in some ways, the judgment. I want you to understand this is not a murderous act by Joshua, but listen, an obedient one. It doesn't mean that the same commands apply to us, even though I know that some of you would like to. It seems harsh to say, but I guarantee most of you have wanted to kill your enemies before. It's not that God is different. It's what God has offered us in Christ has given us a chance to love our enemies and to show the love of Christ in a different way. Afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And as the ancient curse in Deuteronomy 21 shows us, he hanged them on five trees and they hung on the trees until evening. In Deuteronomy 21, we see that the the curse, the symbol of the curse, the, the symbol of you've gone against us is to at times hang the leaders or hang the afflicted. And that's what happens here. Verse 27, but at the time of the going down of the sun, which is a huge reference now, considering the sun just stood in the air, right? But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took, down, uh, the, they took uh, them down from the trees and threw them into the same cave where they had hidden themselves. 
And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. I don't want to overstep my bounds, but I want to make one very clear, very clear, a similar reference that we could run with here a bit, right? These kings are hanged on a, you know, hanged on a tree because of their sin. And a stone is put in front of them. These kings will never, ever exit that cave, ever. And I just for a moment want to celebrate with you that our king was also hanged on a tree. He was also put in a cave with a stone in front of it. But our king walked out three days later. There's a large difference. You see, when you're a righteous king, when you're a king who who has done and is completely innocent and has done no wrong, then the miracle of our king is he walks out. There's a difference of kingdoms here. Verse 28, as for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. No one survives. He left none remaining, and he did it to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. So I have processed this passage over and over, and I am anxious to share with you what I full-heartedly believe now more than ever in my life. Next slide. There are only two categories of hiding. You're either hiding in Christ or in something else. That's it. That's it. There's, there's no other option. Last week, we talked about the premise of hiding in Christ in the cleft of his protection, in his grace, in his mercy, and his love. He's, he's offered in an invitation to us to hide in Him. And so we have that. We can hide in Christ or we're going to hide in something else. The point is, you tonight are hiding in something. The question is what? Next slide. Let's say it this way. What are you hiding in right now? Now, some of you, uh, like me, I'm sure are like, okay, so how would I know this? Uh, well, as I shared earlier, when you progress in the game of hide-and-go-seek, uh, both sides take action. And so let's say it this way. What right now in your life is prompting action? Is it Christ or something else? Very, very simple. What is prompting a response is the glory and the renown and the awesomeness and the grandeur, as we sang earlier, of Christ prompting a worshipful lifestyle response, action, or is it a litany of other things? What are you hiding in now? Next slide. It's either Jesus or, how about this? Next slide. Let's begin with some options. Some of you, no doubt here, are hiding in relationships. Relationships are what driving action in your life. Um, some of you are so driven by the pursuit of a guy or gal because you're tired of being single. Relationships completely, comple- I mean, without them, you're exposed. Without them, you feel complete, like I-, I can't even live and exist. So your friend networks like everything. You have built your entire life relationally around providing yourself the sustenance that you need to live. Do you guys see that? When you're hiding in relationships, then you have used all of your life. And I'm seriously, I am like, 
an, like, I love relationships, unbelievably relational guy. I was talking to a guy yesterday. He's like, Mark, you, like, I, can t- I can tell you care for your people. Yes, that's our heart here. And listen, for me, it is a massive struggle, and I'm just confessing this to you now. When the church got to the point where I could no longer know everyone's name, I struggled with it for a year and a half. Okay, and I'm decent with names, right? Test me later, maybe, right? Like, I'm decent with names, but I'm so relational. What it showed me is have I placed relationships in some idolatrous piece of my heart? Am I trying to hide in them? Do they provide me some, some sense of security that can ultimately only be found in Christ? Are we together? I'm not downplaying relationships. Oh my goodness, the blessing of the body of Christ is incredible. But when you're hiding in them, completely different story. How about this? Jesus or some of you are hiding, next slide, in this reality and truth, past accomplishments or regrets. Right, like this is the this is the guy who all he talks about is winning that, you know, winning that game with the last second touchdown 14 years ago, you know. And it's still the thing that wakes him up in the morning. Um, how about this? Even last week's accomplishments. Believing somehow, please hear this. Believing somehow that your accomplishments define you, or believing somehow that the things that you've done in error define you. You're hiding in those things when you believe your sin is the thing that has defined your life. And I'm not saying that that's easy. Because most of us, if not all of us in here, have a few sins that have harmed, hurt, tremendous amounts of not just ourselves, but others. We've seen the residual impact of it or of them. But listen, I want to make sure you understand something. In Christ, your sin does not define you. In Christ, your accomplishments do not define you. But I know the enemy is for me and for all of you trying to lure us into believing that it's all of this stuff that makes up our identity. The problem is, the scripture says, anyone is in Christ He is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. I'm not defined by what I've done or what I'll do. I'm defined by who he is. But the reality is many of us, many of us running to that, hiding in that. We don't know how to get out of the identity of our sin. It's only in Christ. That's it. And I know this one's particularly heavy because you know the coldness and the isolation and the darkness of the cave. It's horrific but you also don't know how to get out. Next slide. Jesus or the expectations of others. Hello, somebody. It's overwhelming when you start to think about what people expect of you. I've tried to be as vulnerable as I possibly can about this, so I'll try again. I know that on your way home tonight that some of you um, will say things like, man, I can't believe Mark said that or Mark's an idiot or did you see his hair tonight? Like he needs to cut that beard. You know I mean? Just like constant judgment, constant ridicule, constant. And so the thoughts, whether they're happening or not, 
the enemy attacks me and has come at me at many times in my life and basically has tried to make me be who everyone wants me to be. Because the reality is all of us are prone that direction with people in our life. We want them to be a certain way. And all of us have that expectation. Some good, some sinful. You want me to be a certain way. You want Pastor Lonnie to be a certain way. Pastor Jared, Pastor Jeff, Pastor Craig, your law family leaders. Like, you, you want us to be a certain way. You want me to fit into this mold. And I can 100% live my entire life hiding in those expectations. Just waking up to meet another expectation so that I'll get a smile or some affirmation or someone will text me and say, well done. When I get so interested in the glory of God and so disinterested in the glory of man, that is when I'm hiding in Christ. And listen, I I know when I'm sinful in that moment because I, I find myself waiting for the next encouragement. Versus, listen, all I can do is be obedient. Lord, all I need is your love and your grace. Even if everyone abandons me, including my family, if I have Christ, I have it all. It is so difficult to live in that reality, I understand. I'm just confessing the battle is on. When you find yourself hiding in the expectations of others, it is a never-ending, exhausting circle. I'm praying against it even now in my own life. Jesus or... Next slide. We, uh, we often think in terms of addiction, like alcohol or pornography or other drugs, which are certainly hiding places for folks. Uh, but I also want to bring to the table food. I also want to bring to the table gossipers. I also want to bring to the table social media. You guys have heard me say it before. If you spend anything, anything, 30 minutes a day, and you took that out of your life, you would get back over seven days of your year. So for those of you that spend over 30 minutes on social media, if you took it out of your life, I'm not saying that it's sinful, I'm just pointing it out. If you're addicted to it, then it's sinful. You would get back seven days of your year. By the time you're 41, you would have an entire year of your life back. What happens in addiction is when you find yourself hiding in those places, the lie of the addiction is that it can do what nothing else can And then once you're so entrenched in it, the belief is there's no way out. I know many of you have come here tonight with certain addictions in your life, things that your life right now is showing you cannot exist without. I just want you to hear one thing before we move on. There is a way out tonight. There's a way out. I know it feels like the stone is over the cave and there's no moving it. I want you to hear this. There's a way out tonight. My guess is you've heard those words before and I can only pray right now that you would hear them and believe them. Jesus, or next slide, a profession, a way of life like your day-to-day, whatever that looks like for you, whether it's a job or 
taking care of the house or doing this over here or working for that person over there. It doesn't, like, your day-to-day, oh, my goodness. Some of you can't wait to get out of your house so that you can hide at your job. These people at home don't appreciate me. Uh, appreciate me. My spouse doesn't appreciate me. I go to my job. I get paid. People give me some affirmation. They tell me how great a job I'm doing. I'm starting to flirt now a little bit with that person that sits across the hallway. And so I cannot wait to get out of this jail that is my home. And I cannot wait to get to my workplace. I just want to make sure all of us understand something very, very true right now. Our home. Our marriages, our parenting, that, my friends, is the first place of mission, period. And when we find ourselves hiding in Christ, then we see the blessing that is. But for many of you, it's just escapism. Your job, you can't wait because it means one more day of flirting, one more day of pursuing the paycheck, which ultimately has been the thing that has provided you the most value. Christ offers a different way. Next slide, Jesus or accumulation. Let me, let me just ask this in a, as bold, blunt, forthright way that I possibly could. If everything that you have right now is completely gone, uh, would you still be somebody? I mean, literally, if you were out on the street right now, everything you had, cars, home, food, degree, listen, If you are just you, no stuff, no fallback, I mean completely exposed and vulnerable, can I ask you this? Who would you be then? When you answer that question, then you can tell if you're hiding in accumulation. When you could live for the glory of Christ without any of it, Oh my goodness, that is the place of beauty when you know you're hiding in Christ. I don't need this. God's graced me with it, and I'm going to use it for his glory. My home is his glory. My family for his glory. My my stuff, all of it for his glory. Just ask yourself that very difficult question. Next slide. And finally, Jesus or... All right. Can we, can we make one step forward right now? Is that cool? Some of you have created a pseudo-reality that you know isn't you at all, but that everyone sees. And you run to that person. It's the person you want to be, but feel like you can't. It's the person that you enjoy others thinking that you are. But you're not even sure how to really, in the core of you, get there. If many of us tonight put on the table who we really are, what's really happening, what's really behind what we're saying, do you understand what would happen? I'm wondering tonight what the percentages of people, just like, like, you know, some of the crazy spy movies, I mean, you've gone to almost that degree. You have created a complete false identity. And every night you lay your head in the pillow and wonder who in the world you are.
for anyone and everyone not hiding in Jesus. Next slide. I want to ask you this question. What are you afraid of? Earlier I asked, not when was the time that you have hid, but why would you? What are you afraid of? As I've wrestled with this in my own life, what am I really afraid of when I just try to fulfill the expectations of others? What am I really afraid of when I live in my insecurity? What, what is really happening in me? Next slide. I think this really summarizes the heart of the Lord in it. Am I a God, he says to the prophet Jeremiah at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? You see, when it boils down, I think what I'm really afraid of is being found out. It's people seeing my weakness. I'd rather meet expectations at times in my sin than actually share I'm struggling inside with insecurity. It's easier. It's easier to hide. It's easier to run there. It's easier to believe that I can hide. My guess is some of you are afraid of the same thing. The problem is we can't. We can't hide. There is no hiding. And so if we can't hide, and if we really believed that, that there was no way to run, there was no cave deep enough, no stone thick enough to distance our sin or our deceit or our betrayal from God and even so he still has offered a way out. Maybe it's at that point of belief of us knowing there is no way to hide anyway so why would we keep trying? Why would we keep exhausting? Why would these kings go there? They're afraid of their own lives. But if we can't hide then maybe it offers a different opportunity. Next slide. You guys remember this? In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, there's some interesting things that God speaks in the Garden of Eden. Can I share them with you? Genesis 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So he tells the serpent, tells Satan, This is going to be your reality. And then he says something very interesting in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your what? Your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, there is a lot, a lot of theological discussion about this verse, but I see no other way to slice it 
than God predicting his ultimate victory when he would stand on the head of the serpent and show that anyone who has spent any time hiding in themselves has a eternal way out in Christ. But that's not all. In Romans chapter 16, as Paul ends this letter, he makes clear that his people know this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In other words, you and I, having no reason to hide, share in the victory of Christ who will allow us to experience the peace that comes from him and the victory over an enemy, even so much as stomping him on his head. Let's stand together. Come on. There's no reason to hide. He wins. There's no reason to hide. It has nothing for you. There's no reason to spend one more day creating a false identity that others can live within because he already knows who you truly are and has offered a way out. There's no reason to spend one more day hiding in your addictions and believing that they have something to offer you when the scripture has made very clear that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's in him that we have sustenance. There's no reason to spend one more day believing that your accumulation provides you some sort of cleft and protection because if it's all gone and you don't have Christ, you are protected by nothing. You don't have to live one more day believing that your relationships are what will ultimately be your worth. Come out of the hiding place. It's dark. It's lonely. It's isolating. It's cold. What Jesus says is you are the light of the world. Why? Because you are people that have come out of the cave because of who I am. And now you can tell everyone else what it was like to be in there, how lonely it was, and how cold it was, and how defeating it was. And you can tell everybody now what it's like to live in the light. We then can tell the world what it's like to be saved even though we didn't deserve it. We get to tell and shout from the mountaintops, oh my goodness, you can come out of there because of what he's done. So let's come out now. We share in the ultimate victory of Christ. And so tonight, we, though addicted, though struggling, though hiding, though defeated, all of it, all of it tonight, in the person of Christ, we can find peace and rest. So Father, I pray, I pray in boldness for my friends, my brothers and sisters who I care about so much, that they would not believe the lie right now, that they have to stay in the darkness. Kill that lie, God. Take the enemy's voice out of their mind. I pray right now that all of us together body of Christ can believe that we can 
hide in you. So open the cave stone and bring us in your son into the light, God.